with Rick and Paul, and today we are asking the question, are we in a golden age of wine? We sure aren't in the golden age of radio. No, you could tell that by us, can't you? <laughs> I'm Rick Cushman. I'm Paul Wagner. This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Today we're going to decide whether we're in this golden age of wine, whether it matters to you, actually. We'll talk to winemaker Mark McKenna, who asks, is wine too good for its own good? He says he'll explain. We've got lots of listener questions, and as usual, we will make fun of wine snobs. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and today we're talking about whether we're in a golden age of wine and whether, frankly, dear listener, it matters to you. We are in the golden age. There's Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul on the radio. Enough said. That you know, the, It is the industry rejoices, does it not? <laughs> I hear the angels. Oh, no, the trumpets come later, right? <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> well, actually, what they do say that, but uh, I think that we need to kick around something a little differently, which is the larger question of, is this a golden age? I, I need to give uh, credit to longtime wine writer Mike Steinberger, who wrote a column or story about this more than a year ago, and, and it's been on my mind now and then. You know, I, I think it's an interesting question, but what brought it's taken you this long to understand the column? Is I'm that what slow. You're As, do you not know by now that <laughs> I, I kind of move slowly on these sorts of things? Actually, what brought it up in my mind was uh, there was this angry debate. It's one of the blogs. It's a well-read blog. It was an right. angry debate about whether adding sugar should be illegal or just shunned. In I other see. words, can, if you add sugar to wine, yeah. should it be against the law or is it just a really bad thing and we should make people feel bad about it? And I'm thinking to myself, this is something of a first world problem now. You know, if we're talking about something this tiny, I think we've reached that line in academia where they say the reason why the fights are so bitter is because the stakes are so small. That's right. So it got me to thinking, is that what's going on? And I thought there's a lot to, to talk about. So let's think okay. about this. On the one hand, there's a lot of great wine out there. Not only there's a lot of great wine, but because of transportation, we have a selection of wines to drink literally from all over the world. It's absolutely mind-blogging. When you go back to the greatest heads of Europe 150 years ago, they were basically drinking five or six kinds of wine. We go into our local CVS pharmacy or our local supermarket, and we have a selection of wines that would be the envy of the sellers of most of the great heads of Europe 150 years ago. So on that level alone, it's unbelievably rich and rewarding. And Same with food, by the way. I mean, yeah, the fact oh, that absolutely. we can drink, drink, we can eat green-lipped mussels from... New Zealand one day and caviar from Russia the next day. And, of course, I don't eat any of that stuff. But you can drink wines from Chile and Argentina. You can eat venison and buffalo. And it's just unbelievable what we get to choose from. Buffalo wine is the best, by buffalo the way. Buffalo wine yeah, is yeah. the best. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, and there's this, too, I think, which is that there's also a reliability of wine. And whether it's the yes. $7 Chardonnay that you're buying at the supermarket or the $170 Cabernet that you're buying in Napa Valley. Pretty or, darn consistent or, or, quality. And as you said, you know, the Chianti Classico or yep. a wine from South America yep. or South Africa, 
It's yep. going to get to you in pretty solid shape. Pretty and, solid shape. And it was pretty well made to begin with. Well, And the other part of it, too, is is that the wine industry has grown because people's wine thirst has grown, not just in America, but around the world. And so more places are making wine. There's more styles. There may not necessarily be new well, grapes, but there's different people doing different things. It's interesting you the point of styles because on the one hand, there are more styles in I some ways. I know where ways, you're going. I know where you're but going. at the same time, there are an awful lot of people who have said, gee, to be successful— and let's be fair, to be successful in the world of wine these days pretty much means to make wine that will sell in America, because we are the biggest wine market in the world right now. You run into that old problem of the you know, the state of California textbooks, is that what California wants in a textbook, that's what everybody else yeah. uses, because yeah, yeah, yeah. we buy the most textbooks. Well, it's the same thing with wine. Americans buy the most wine. We have a tendency to like certain kinds of wines. And there are wines that have fallen out of favor and may ultimately disappear because not enough people in America know about them or want to drink them. Well, and that, that is an absolute true thing. And I think this is working in both ways. One of them is that because as more people drink, as the markets expand, yes, that it is becoming a, a universality. In the way, if you think about like the difference between these, you know, small broadcast online television stations and CBS, which is a larger broadcaster, if you're appealing to a lot more people, you have to round off edges. Right. So for a lot of folks right. now that are trying to take advantage of whether it's the American palate or the the sort of global availability yep. of palates, yep. you know, you, you kind of have to make something instead of trying to make something that's super spectacular, make something that doesn't bother it bothers the fewest amount of people. Well, yeah. which, which then puts it in the middle. So there is that force going on. In fact, I know that our friend uh, Mark McKenna is going to talk to us a little bit more about that. I mean, um, if if you like where everything's going, be careful because you know that in ten years or so. People are saying that China will be the largest wine market in the world. And what is fascinating is that China outdrinks white, uh, red to white by a large, large margin. So that when you think about many of the world's wine regions looking at their production and thinking we'd better pull out white vines to plant reds because the demand in China is going to outstrip supply, suddenly you're starting thinking, gosh, I hope they don't pull out the white wine I like. But I'm going to go back to this point where that more people are making wine and more places yes. are making wine. And you look at like the Repu all 50 states, you look for at, example. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. You look all 50 at, states. Or, or old wine regions like the Republic. Republic of Georgia has yes. gotten its wine making yep. back online, and you yep. know, and you've got places like South Africa where this really robust industry is going on. Yep. And so I'm going to argue, although I understand two sides of this coin. You know, coins have both sides. Yes, and, and uh, I'm, I'm wondering who you're arguing with. I'm wondering if you aren't arguing with yourself. No, I was but totally okay. arguing with myself, okay, actually. Good. As I was <laughs> saying this, I'm thinking, that. Rick, you're wrong, but say it anyway, because <laughs> Paul's going to make, you know, he's going he's to make you pay for it, and it wouldn't be the first time. No, I'm, I'm thinking this is that uh, here's the problem with what I'm saying. The problem with what I'm about to say is— <laughs> You're taking all the fun out of this show. This is what I like to do, Okay, right? I'll leave you to the problem, then. <laughs> But there are still more places making more distinct styles and things because they're just different places and different styles and different things. Yes. But, but my problem yes. with, with what I just said is that it may be hard to get some of them. It may be hard to get some because, of course, you've got those constriction points of how wine is, is distributed. It's tough to get a company that's selling huge amounts of Chardonnay in California to say, yeah, I want to go out of my way to bring in a strange little wine from – I just had some beautiful wines from the, the Tokai region of Hungary, Rye wines made from the Formant grape. But, you know, these are guys who make 150, 300, 600 cases of wine for the year. 
and they're over here trying to get somebody to sell them. And of course, a guy who's selling a million cases of Chardonnay through his distributorships is not going to want to mess with 17 cases of Furment. So you got well, that problem. I might argue the, the distributor, no, you're absolutely right. And this is always the problem. In fact, when we did our beer show a couple of months ago, we talked about yep. this is the problem for the craft beer industry is that the pipeline is not going to support small people because right. nobody wants to spend the time. Yeah. But having said that, as the food world expands, and you know, I'm t- talking about the golden age of food, is that all these restaurants that now want to be distinctive. They need something different. They need something different. They and so there are different. places to sell them. And you can get yeah. them in San Francisco and Sacramento yeah. and Napa but and it's Los different. Angeles. But and for example, a restaurant can't import on its own. A retail shop. Right. Can, so you still need somebody to, to make bring the them commitment over. to the industry to say, I'm going to bring a bunch of wines over that nobody's ever heard of. I'll do it, Paul. I'll do it. Okay, excellent. Rick, you're hired. Okay. If somebody can, well, it's not going to happen. What do they say about a fool and his money? I forget. Yeah, well, it'd be, in this case, it would be a fool with your money is what it would be. <laughs> that would be me. Yeah. The uh, the other th- part about, uh, about the wine world, and I need to say this, you know, is that one of the things I find absolutely um, uh, enjoyable about it is that the, it's there are certainly thieves and, and and heathens and crooks and others like there are in every industry. Even in radio. Even in radio. Luckily, none here. <laughs> well, incompetent is a different <laughs> issue. Um, but I find it to be a ver- an industry filled with nice people. Or uh-huh. ni- you know that you know I there's this joke. You know, people talk about rock star winemakers and the guy who spent you know nearly two decades covering See, Hollywood. You know what? I I think it's I think it gets back to agriculture. I I describe what you're what you're talking about here as a generosity of spirit. Yes. And I think it goes back to literally those farming days when your daughter would get married to my son and the whole farming community would get together and in two days build them a house because that's what you did in those days because farmers help farmers. Yeah. Or somebody's, somebody's you know, hayloft has a problem and you agree to store hay for him for th- six weeks. While some, that kind of stuff happens in agriculture. It doesn't happen in industry. Yeah. You don't see General Motors calling up and saying, hey, listen, we're running a little short of tires. Can we borrow some of yeah. yours? Not going to happen. It's, the industry is filled with, with stories of people helping each other and with technology Absolutely. With, with stuff like that. You I, know, I need a picking crew. I need a press. Can right. you help me? That stuff happens all – and I think that's part of that generosity of spirit. Yeah, and I was going to say, you know, you, the phrase rock star winemaker comes up now and then disparagingly. And as a guy who, like I said, covered Hollywood a lot and, and dealt with more than a few rock stars – these people are pussycats in the wine world. The Compared worst to rock of them. Stars. The worst of them are, the, are, 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 you know, they may have their issues, but they're by far So which nicest. rock stars were really difficult? <laughs> well, I will say, uh, remember the show American Idol. Uh, there's a few that were on that one, but I'm going to keep moving on. All right. Well, we are not difficult, and we are not rock we stars. We have a generosity of spirit. We certainly do. And we're going to answer some questions with that generosity when we come right back. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. It's time to open our mailbag and take some questions. If you'd like to be one of those people that asks a question, we'll say wonderful things about you. You just go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. And remember, look for us on iTunes. You can subscribe with just one little bitty click, and it's free. If you know us, well, now you know we're not rock stars. and uh, <laughs> Nor will we ever be. Or Yeah, and we may be bringing down the golden age of radio. But if you want to know why we're, uh, why we're here, why, why people should be listening to us, I'll tell you. 
Paul's a respected industry pro. He answers questions on allexperts.com. He teaches at places like the Culinary Institute of America and Napa Valley College. He is uh, he knows people. He does. He knows people. And he's something of a professional. And Rick is the wine commentator for Capital Public Radio, as well as a author of a couple of books, including one of which somehow managed to sell enough copies to get on the New York Times bestseller I'm list. I'm as surprised as you are. It was a, it was a good thing. So mm-hmm. who do we hear from about, uh, about wine this week? Well, our first question comes from Brittany Kuzitsa in Sacramento. She says, I like Chardonnay. I tried a Sauvignon Blanc. Didn't really like it. But I want to try something else. What else in the white world might I like? Okay. Well, I think there's an interesting question here because I wonder, for example, what kind of Chardonnay Brittany likes. If Brittany likes the kind of Chardonnay you buy for about $10 in a supermarket, perfectly good, well-made Chardonnay, those wines actually tend to have a little bit of sugar in them. Mm -hmm. And in that case, I would suggest to Brittany she could explore some Riesling, because I think it, she might find it interesting. But to me, the one grape she really ought to go for, because I think she might really like it, it has the same softness that you get out of Chardonnay. It has a little more aromatics, and that's Viognier. That's what I was going to say. Well, no, I already said it, so you have Fine. to say well, something I have another different. One, I have another sort of, uh, actually two other grapes that I find that are, especially, ha- depends on how they're made, but are sort of r- really nice yep. next wines. One is Chenin Blanc. Yes. You know, and it, it can have the same sort of rich yeah. mouth. Hard know. to find, but good. Harder to find, yeah. Although, and I'm, I need to add that from where we uh, where we sit here, about 20 minutes down the road is Some ground Chenin zero Blanc for Chenin Blanc and Clarksburg. Yep. The other is another wine that's a little harder to find, but the Americanized version of this is Gruner Veltliner. And, you uh-huh, know, uh-huh. it's it's a little leaner, a little more, but it's still, I found— yeah, but there's a lot of acid in that. I, yeah. think that would, I think that would scare her away. I found a few. Well, she didn't like the Sauvignon Blanc, so you, you might know, be and, right. You and the right. other option for her might actually be the wine that was introduced to directly compete with Chardonnay in Italian restaurants, which is, of course, Pinot, Pinot Grigio. Grigio. Sure. Sure, sure, sure. And that's sort yeah. of become the new Chardonnay in a way. And, and they're made— the phrase is innocuously, and I don't mean that in—it's what we were talking before about trying not to— Very clean. Very simple, so there doesn't, there's nothing right. in it that people wouldn't like, and for somebody that is yep. drinking Chardonnay. So, uh, Brittany, I, I hope that is uh, something of a—if you don't like any of those, let us know, and we'll make more suggestions. We'll find some more things right. for you to try. I like this next one. This is a good question. From Janet Weil from our Fresno enclave. Ah, uh, yes. What options are available if a friend is a non-drinker? And you want to keep them included. Mm-hmm. She says, I mean, besides Martinelli's, which is okay. Any tips about what makes them not feel bad or some good wines? Well, you know, there's a lot of some pretty interesting non-alcoholic wines out there. And some of them, um, I need to do this. I need to read a description, a couple of one of them, Ariel Cabernet, because if you want to be included in the discussion, you just need to read this descriptor. Because, and this is for a non-alcoholic Non-alcoholic. Wine. It's, right. an, it's, it's produced in a sustainable winery in Paso Robles, California. After yes. undergoing fermentation in a stainless steel cooperage, the wine is separated from the skins, and a portion of it is moved into oak barrels for extended aging. Just prior to bottle, the alcohol is gently removed for cold f- filtration. And then here comes the winemaker's comments. Yeah. Offers aromas of black currants, cherry, blueberries, and chocolate. Soft tannins and a dry finish. Enjoy with beef, lamb, and red sausage. 85% cab, 15% merlot. 
Cab Franc, and Syrah. So here's the new, good news. You can be just as dumbfounded by the descriptions. <laughs> you can use the same stupid language. You yes. can hold your glass with that silly little tilt to your wrist. You can act exactly like a wine snob, only not have alcohol in the wine. Yeah. That's great. And I know you've done a little work with Ariel. Didn't you? Is, that, is that the yes, winery? Yes, in fact, yeah. I've, I, I, I worked with them for a few years. Quite interesting. One of the things that's fascinating when you, when you start working with wines from which the alcohol has been removed is that you discover that alcohol plays a huge role in the perception of flavor of the wine. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, in fact, when they remove the alcohol, they discover that the base wine is really not as flavorful as they would like. And so they basically have to over-make the wine. Huge concentration, tons of oak. And then when they take the alcohol out, the wine balances out to be a um, picture of what, of, what the, of, of what the original wine would like, you would like to think the original wine was. Yeah, Pretty you know, interesting we, process. We, we talk about it, but sort of going off your question, Jana, but you know, the, you, a lot of wineries, you know, they talk about the, the alcohol levels, and there's this debate inside the church of wine, and it's certainly worth talking about at some point, but is that alcohol also increases a little bit of the perception of sweetness, it, it, per, it yep. increases the perception of fruitiness. Body. Yeah, and certainly gives you that sense of body, body. absolutely. Yep. And yep. it's a real, it really adds to the body. Yep. Um, and so, if, if I can make an absolutely unsolicited product plug, uh, I am not a huge fan of non-alcohol wines. I think that in many cases they fall short of the goal of tasting like wines with alcohol. Of course they do. That's kind of logical. But the Ariel White Zinfandel is the best adult soda pop I know. There you go. And it's a good soda pop. Well, and, you know, there's the uh, is the word that I use that, um, that our— uh, our kind and patient engineer and producer, Matt Pacini, has asked me about, which is snap. Um, but, you know, what those wines sometimes miss is that it's that, you know, the little bit of freshness or brightness yeah. or, yeah. you know, a little acidity yeah. on the back end of so it. So what do we tell our friend uh, Janet, who well, wants to include her friend, but they don't drink? I say try these. I say give them a try. Ask sure. them what they think. Let them tell you what they think because yes. now they get to they get to um, uh, get to at least be included in the conversation. Uh, and then when they start to describe the wine like we just read it, tell them, oh, you're a, you're a snob. <laughs> and they'll feel totally well, part of it. I have one other solution, and it comes from a really interesting book that I actually own, which is um, an etiquette guide from Emily Post written, guess when, during Prohibition, when you could not drink. Technically, you could drink. You just couldn't buy or sell alcohol. And she suggests... At any glamorous table, if you don't have alcoholic beverages to offer your guests, offer them something else. And she actually even suggests putting colored water in the glasses to give the table a more festive look. But there are lots of interesting infusion teas and other mm -hmm. things. I think it would be lots of fun to offer your guest a, a cranberry marmalade cinnamon iced tea or something else that would be sort of fun for them to taste that they could put together and drink with whatever food you're serving them. I want that. You want that. That sounds good. I think yeah, so. You know, yeah, I think yeah. it would be fun. I think it would really show what every host should show, which is consideration for their guest. Um, and who knows, you may find something that they fall in love with and you've made a friend for life. You know, we have a guest later in the show. We should make this for him. Well, I was going to say we. Uh, I so think we, we should were, ask him to bring one. Well, I was say if we were good hosts, we would show consideration. But you know, no, we're going. It's not. No, gonna, we're not going to. It's just out of character for us. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that is not going to happen. We're going to ask him to bring us drinks. Yeah. 
the uh, we have another one. Uh, you know, we get these kinds of questions a lot. This goes another Chardonnay related question. This is Peter Sims from Napa. Note the Napa. Napa. Yeah. I hear they make wine there. I think. I've heard that. I yes. live in well, Napa. They you make do, and we are on the air in KVON in Napa. That's right. Thank you, KVON. He says, I like buttery Chardonnay, though I have to be careful saying that around some of my friends in the wine business. Right. What's the big deal? Seems like it's getting harder to find them now, or is that just my friends? No, he's absolutely it right. It is getting harder. Because 15 years ago, the absolute role model for Chardonnay, and there's a brand that I think exemplifies this whole style very well, which is Rombauer. Yeah, absolutely. And they've got a beautiful brand. They've got a very strong brand-loyal audience that loves their Chardonnay. There are a number of producers who've decided that over the long run, they can't out Rombauer, Rombauer Chardonnay. Uh, there's no point in being the third or fourth or fifth or seventh best wine in that version. And one of the things you're hearing from a lot of the sort of uh, more food-sensitive sommeliers in the business is a wine like Rombauer, beautiful wine to drink as a cocktail, may not be as easy to match up with a lot of different foods as a lighter-style wine. So a lot of wineries are moving to this lighter style of Chardonnay. And the fact that Peter likes it, it's a little bit sad. It's a little bit like saying he really loves his music on LPs. The people who love it, they love that stuff, and yeah. and the people who are fans will tell you you can't get that sound any other way. But in many cases, the world ha is moving to a slightly different paradigm, and we'll see what happens. Yeah, and uh, the other part of that is this, Peter, and and don't let them do that to you. You get to like what you like. That's true. And that is in you know that is one of our major rules here is if you love it, you're right. If you hate it, you're right. That's and, right. And if they don't want to drink it, you tell them, look, you don't have to drink it. You don't drink my stuff. I don't drink your stuff. That's right. More wine for me, more wine for you. That's right. There's a saying in the in the hiking business that you should hike your own hike. We should say you should drink your own wine. Drink whatever you want to drink. And take your own wine on your own hike. <laughs> Absolutely right. All right. Yes. More questions coming up, but we will have some bad write, wine writing for you first. Oh, I can hardly wait. Uh, but you can't. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. There we go. We're dancing in the studios. Rick is dancing in his chair. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're dancing because we know what's coming, and it is some really horrible wine writing. Okay, I got two words for you. Boutique and artisan. Ooh. Turns out that everybody is either a boutique winery or an artisan winemaker. And, hand, and, and they do it hand, with hand And they handcraft yeah. every bottle. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's it. Yes, boutique. It's, it's they're, they really, and once again, this is, these are absolutely, never mind the fact that there's no, like no regulation on these words, but there's no regulation. They mean though. nothing. They mean nothing. Well, now they mean nothing. There was a point when boutique actually meant something back when it was used very rarely to describe a very small shop that specialized in something. But now you walk into a huge department store and it is described right. as a collection of boutiques. That ain't what it is, and it's gone downhill ever since. Yeah, yeah, and right, and the same thing as the artisan, because what you know, as opposed to the non-artisan winery where they they're not they're trying really hard. Doesn't to make it make it you bad? Doesn't it make you look back longingly to the days of artesian? Oh yeah, yeah. You know, the at least there wine. was a at least there was a brewery that used artesians to make their beer, and we didn't have to worry about artisan. Yeah, yeah. 
I have a, an artisanally written description here. Would you describe this description as handcrafted? I would. It Excellent. Is, it came, came from a boutique writer. <laughs> Blue flower, wild rose, perfumed berry, and a balsamic note wafted from the glass. Wow. Structured but graceful. The vibrant palette weaves together crunchy red cherry, crushed raspberry, white pepper, licorice, vineyard dust, cinnamon, and baking spices, alongside firm but polished tannins. Tempting now, but hold until two th- good until 2020. 2031, I'm 2031, sorry. 2031, so that's a while, yeah, too. Yeah, how do so, you how, how do crushed raspberries smell different than regular raspberries? How does crunchy red cherry smell different than red cherry? How, does, how do you smell crunchy? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how you smell we crunchy. We should introduce crunchy red cherry to grunty. And, we had that last week, didn't and we? How, does a wild rose smell different from a rose in a bush? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wild roses are different. Oh, they're— Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. Because yeah, they're wild and untamed. Yes. Well, and the perfumed berry wouldn't be—you um, know, you wouldn't be able to smell it if it wasn't perfumed. And how does a blue flower <laughs> smell, by the way? Can you smell the blue? <laughs> There's a guy trying a little too hard, if you ask me. All right. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Don't forget you can find us on iTunes and subscribe for free. Our friend Mark McKenna will be in here to tell us a little bit more, maybe argue a little bit about the Golden Age when we come right back. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and uh, we were talking earlier about this being a golden age for wine. It was certainly a golden age for radio, as we've already proven. That's right. Right. Uh, well, we brought in our friend Mark McKenna. He's a former winemaker and GM at Andes in Amador County, now the same at Skoda Family Cellars in Lodi. I happen to know this guy, and I happen to like him, so we brought him in. He's also one of my favorite plain-speaking winemakers and a friend of the show. And he says, maybe wine has gotten too good for its own good. Well, what does he know? Well, you know, people say that <laughs> not, about us, by the way. <laughs> they say that every day yeah. about us. Yeah, they do. They say that. I'm the smartest guy in the room, and I'm the only guy in the room, and that's <laughs> the only time. Well, Mark, welcome to Bottle Talk. And, Thank you. It's and a pleasure to be here. Tell us what you mean by that. What I mean by that is that wine without quote-unquote flaws, wine that all become the same, becomes a very unexciting thing. One of the most exciting things about wine is the exploration of different uh, vintages, different varietals, different styles. And we've gotten to the point where the classic consumer being nervous in the wine aisle of the supermarket is the silliest thing possible. In some ways, there's more diversity in the bread aisle than there is in the wine aisle. Hmm. Um, And, you know, I don't mean that derogatorily. There are more skilled winemakers and more, quote unquote, perfect wines being made now than ever before. But, um, you know, if you want to equate it to fashion or beauty or something like that, I don't think there should be one vision of what's perfect. I think the diversity right. of beauty or the diversity of exploration is what makes it exciting in the first place. Okay. So well, I'm going to tie it to music. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So on the one hand, I hear what you're saying. We want as many different styles and techniques and all the rest of this. But I want to talk a little bit about the fact that if you hear somebody playing music and they're making a lot of mistakes, that doesn't actually make the music more interesting or more... It actually makes the music less good. But it's the notes that you skip sometimes that are as important as the notes that you play. Um, so if you ever heard the anecdote of the guy who drove his car off the road and had the same you know, Creedence Clearwater Revival tape stuck in his deck for eight hours, I think in a lot of ways, from a wine-drinking perspective, that's what we're doing. Um, mm. Wait, are we, we distant credence here? Because uh, no, the first hour is fantastic. Yeah, I'm just saying because you know that, I'm still that, that in uh, an ebony and ivory. That's the other song that I listen to constantly. <laughs> no, I mean I, I guess what I'm saying is if if you look at some, well, first of all, part of my perspective is that wine in and of itself 
is fermented grape juice. Like it should never ever right. be forgotten. And more right. wine is drank by quote unquote normal people than you know the people on so the cover. So nobody of in this Fair. room clearly, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so to me, wine in and of itself is not interesting. The interesting thing about wine is that it evokes emotion, it evokes experience, it evokes memory. Um, and that only normally happens when you have something slightly disruptive or slightly interesting to say. So is it the flaws that is the issue or is it this it, what we were talking about earlier, you know, the, the CBS approach to television versus the, you know, the Netflix approach to television, which is, you know, let's just appeal to a couple of people and be really interesting in this one way versus the CBS is let's appeal to all these people, but we're not we're going to do it by really not offending anyone. Is that is it? So I guess what I'm saying is not necessarily that the wine's too clean. It's just that it's too inoffensive. It's too inoffensive, but also I think that we're teaching a consuming public. Well, first of all, there's a place for the absolutely drinkable, um, unoffensive glass of wine. I mean, the number one selling wine in the United States is gentlemen Chardonnay. No, no, I mean the number one selling KJ. brand. It's Franzia box wine. Oh, oh, the box wine. Oh, you were talking about just in general. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and those, by, I mean, by the and, and, yes, and I have some yeah, yeah. great memories, mostly in college, involving Franzia box wine. But you know, to have a beverage that people can just come home from their day and enjoy is important. But I think that what we're starting to get away from is people finding little nooks and crannies that they can really dig their teeth into or their palates into. And for are that those? Matter. But are those? Do you think those are going away? Because I we, we were just, just arguing we just whether they saying are. that they're not. Yeah. So what do you know? Well, not much, not much. That's for sure. But, I, but the, the word, the the use of the word flaws, I think, is a tough one because if you look at like something right. like reduction in the Rhone Valley, if you look at you know petroleum aspects of Riesling, you know, in the Moselle, which, which I happen to love, I love them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, yeah, reduction. We, we've, we've had this, we have love. established the fact Rick will drink anything. Well, there's that so. too. Yeah, there is that. I mean, it's no, pretty, that's true. you know, but I do but, love that that petroleum. My wife and I have had that debate. She doesn't. I love it. I'm always trying to find them. She says you have to drink them yourself, which is also why I find them. There so you go. You find them. You have to. Drink them yourself. Yeah, yeah Britannomyces, friend or foe. Yeah, I'm I'm more friend than foe. For I the, like, agree. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, but having said that, I think that we don't actually disagree with you in in a large aspect. Sure. You know, but I think that the maybe what we're saying is the availability of and and whether those are going to go away. And I know that you think that maybe they will. That that you you've you know I've had this conversation. You think wine's sort of at its tipping point. I do, and, I, and you know I'm no historian, but you know we talk about well, the golden age. <laughs> yeah, I think you qualify to right. sit in on this group yes, immediately. You are, you are, we don't know but, anything. Yeah. Yet. But you know, the golden age precedes the fall, right? And I mean, to me, the problem right now is a, a fundamental one in the wine business, which is people got to make a living. Mm -hmm. People got to make a living. Sure. There's too many wineries in the world. And what you see now is people mimicking success. Mm -hmm. So y y there are imperfect wines that are doing spectacularly, like something like uh, Menage a Trois from Sutter Home. That was a gutsy move on Sutter Home's well, part. Well, that's a gutsy winery, though. That family in general has, from time to time, pulled the trigger on things that other wineries ran away from. Without question. Yeah. Gutsy labeling, gutsy yep. wine, the whole thing. And yep. a ton of people are enjoying it, right? Well, that wine is, quote-unquote, imperfect in some ways. Right. But people have found that they love it. Yep. And all I'm saying is, and I think part of it is, I, it's not just the wineries. Um, the way wine is sold now is making it more and more difficult. You look see, at great think, retailers, I and they suggest risks. Yeah, see, I think that's a bigger issue than what the winemakers are doing. Um, I, I know, it, I, if you look at what's planted in California today compared to 10 years ago, there are more unusual varieties yes. now than there were 10 years ago. Without people question. Are, people are exploring this stuff. Without question. And on the consumer side, You've got a new generation of consumers, these millennials, who are really quite experimental mm -hmm. about willing to try stuff. 
the bottleneck comes in somebody's got to get the wine from the winery onto the store shelf so the consumer can buy it. And those people, I would argue, are probably a little behind the times. Their vested interest isn't necessarily in expanding the horizon of the wine consumer. Their job, their, their incentive is how can I put the best-selling possible product on the shelf and sell as much of it as possible? And that's not giving people a lot of options. Yeah, and you know what that is? That gets back to the, uh, you know, I shouldn't keep using this example because we'll never get on CBS radio, but um, <laughs> but it's the network television notion where is, you know, distributors, they want to operate in the largest volume possible because it's basically easiest, but also makes them the most money. It's how they get paid. And they get paid to sell wine. Right. They don't get paid right. to educate people. They are not brand builders. Absolutely. It's not their job, even though a lot of wineries don't understand that. And then if you are a store, and whether it's it's a larger store like Safeway or one of the smaller markets like our Nugget here in the Northern California, right. although Nugget is a little different because it makes some of its money being a wine shop, but nonetheless, they still, volume and numbers come first. And so- that is always going to be a force in the industry. and and But I also think that it is a re- reaction to a good thing that's happening, which is more people are drinking wine. Mm-hmm. As Paul said, millennials, or you guys both said, millennials are coming into the market. And so that there are more people willing to try things. So on the one hand, they're being given the CSIs, right. you know, the show CSI, which is a perfectly watchable show. But then when they wander across one of my favorite recent shows, True Detective on HBO, yeah. And you go, wow, that's really good too. And so I think that the yeah. door will stay open for the true uh, well, detectives. I out think there. I, I think hmm. you hit the nail on the head. And I think in a, in a lot of ways, what we're doing right now, maybe the golden age is we're writing some wrongs that have happened 30 years ago, mm-hmm. which was mm-hmm. we were one of the great industries. You, you read my college transcripts, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my mine, mine, mine are much better. Uh, <laughs> we are one of the few industries that did a great job of making consumers afraid of our product. Oh, yeah, lordy. I mean, literally, you know, I've had friends call me from business dinners asking what should I order on this wine oh, list yeah. because I don't right. want to embarrass myself. Oh, yeah. we, we all get those questions. It's ridiculous. Yep. It's ridiculous. Yep. And so if people now are, are perfectly comfortable drinking a bottle of wine because they can trust that it's not flawed, maybe the next step is what are we going to do from there? Yes. And See, the parcels that you're talking about, and you're right, there's more Grenache, there's more, yep. you know, Tempranillo, Tempranillo all these beautiful wines. And they're all being sold to wine clubs, and they're being sold to consumers who are going yep. out and looking for yep. them. And those people are going to determine whether the California wine industry becomes an interesting place or just slides back into something where we're making a beverage. Well, I will tell you that the the advice to give the consumer is don't always assume that your local supermarket has a full spectrum of everything that's out there in the marketplace. Right. And instead, take some time, go up, drive some country roads around California, stop in at some of the wineries that are open for business, and see what they're pouring because frequently what they're pouring is we made 75 cases of this or 130 cases of that it's not for sale anywhere but at the winery and it's really interesting stuff and i think i mean just the gets to the heart of it is don't be afraid of liking what you like and don't be afraid right. of not liking what you don't like right and, and, and anywhere in between right yeah well we're big on that like what drink what you like don't drink what you don't like you know we, we just had a question earlier about a guy like a buttery chardonnay and and why did all his friends make fun of him for yeah that? right and you know and it, that's a, that's an unfortunate <laughs> thing and there's there's always going to be a cool kid factor in wine just as there is in anything any i don't yeah. think you should put butter in any wine well <laughs> I, I don't even put it on my toast. That's how <laughs> that's how far I am against it, you know. No. But it is, and it's like 
let people tell you, drink what you like. Let them tell you what to try, but drink what you like. Right. I'm going to go back to this idea that I do think that ultimately as people try things, they will find things that they like. And, you know, yes. I don't think it's all going to just be CSI. And it, and it has to stop being such a, quote, unquote, like intellectual game of this is the right wine, this is the wrong wine. Right. right. Anything, anything. Well, like if, anti, if wine, if, we are absolutely anti-intellectual. If wine doesn't here. elicit yeah, we don't emotion, do if it doesn't make you – and, I mean, some of my favorite wines are wines that I don't actually like – if right. that makes any sense. Sure. I mean, why you know, is it like... It's but, why people they, listen to us. They don't actually like us. <laughs> but just, we are memorable just, in, in many yeah. different ways. Yeah, I mean, there are wineries. Uh, we have some family in the Midwest, and I get made fun of all the time by my cool California winemaker friends because I think Missouri wine yep. is kind of funky yep. and kind of out there. Yep. My favorite you know, sparkling producer is in New Mexico. But you know what? Some of those fruit wines from St. Jane's Winery in Missouri, those are delicious They're wines. They're delicious wines. Absolutely fun. I mean, you can find beauty in a lot of things yep. i mean and you know yeah. once again it's why people listen to us <laughs> thank god i'm just saying they're trying very very hard yeah. i have a theory about all this we'll have to go into uh, sometime yeah. with you mark about yeah. about generations and choice yes yes mm, interesting but no not no time on this show we'll no have to time, do it another no show time to say. well speaking of choice <laughs> We're choosing to end this segment because we got a show to finish. Do we? We okay. have. We got some questions to take, but we will have you back. Yeah, and for sure. We're going to talk to you for sure. And yes. uh, it's a very good point. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. When we come back, more questions from listeners, and some of them may believe it's a golden age, and some of them may not. And next week, that could be you asking one of those questions. Stay with us. listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Time to go back to our mailbag and take some questions. If you'd like to be one of those people that ask us a question, we'll say lovely things about you, we promise. Just go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. And do not forget, we are on iTunes, and you can subscribe for free, one little bitty click. Our first question uh, in this second half of the show comes from Dorothy Hall in Vacaville. And she says, sort of speaking of what we were talking about a little bit, she says, I was warning about wine in jugs. Well, it's actually, she's going down a different road. She says, I was warning about wine in jugs. I know a lot of the old jug wine was pretty bad. But are jugs a bad way to sell wine? Does it hurt the wine? Is there a reason why wine bottles are shaped the way they are? <laughs> That's actually a very good question. Well, in theory, if you think about this, jugs would actually be a pretty good way to sell wine because there's less air for the volume of wine. difference between a $7 jug and a $75 Magnum is cork the cork yeah right. it's the same size bottle yeah the only difference is one has a screw cap one has a cork well and, you put and a screw cap know. on it and you put inexpensive wine in it and it's a jug you put a cork in it you put expensive wine in it and you call it a magnum well, yeah there you go absolutely right the shape has nothing to do with it if you put it a jug and then and put in a, a wider fatter cork that would work too in yeah. fact i've seen that on the old westerns don't they carry that over the shoulder drinking tequila <laughs> out right. of those and then it serves as a musical instrument later on in the uh, in the episode <laughs> yes that's right that's it yes that's right. and we get you play something around the campfire with that. I like it. So the answer is it's really a marketing thing. It's, it, it is. It, I mean, perfectly acceptable way. We've talked about it on the show before. Screw caps are a perfectly acceptable way to seal wine. So the only difference between a jug and a smaller bottle of a screw cap is the volume. That's generally good for the health of the wine. Bigger volume is better. But her other question is really complicated, which is does the shape of the bottle mean anything? Well, 
Because it, the answer is yes, it but sends it's a, a long and historical and interesting answer. We don't have any trumpets this week. Yeah, do we? we don't. We will do a show where we talk a lot about that. But so different yeah. shaped bottles do mean where they're from. And That's they, right. They signify something, but do they mean anything to the wine? The answer is no. Well, well, not entirely. Actually, they don't necessarily. But just to give you an idea, most of the wine bottles we use in America, we use because the shapes we use reflect the region where the grapes that are in that bottle came from in Europe. But beyond that, it's a very long and really, to me, fascinating concept. And by the way, we didn't actually start putting wine in bottles with corks until about late 1600s, early 1700s. Before that, no wine was sealed in glass. No wine was sealed with a cork. And it was a completely different style of wine. Yeah, because we, we actually would, had a history moment about that's that. That's right. Yeah. It would boil pretty quickly, mm-hmm. and you had to drink it fast. One very quick point on the shape of bottles, by the way, and I've had this explained to me by uh, none other than Daryl Cordy, uh, the Vintners Hall of Fame member Daryl Cordy and also yes. a grocer in Sacramento, uh, was that uh, one of the reasons why Riesling had a very difficult time catching on, especially in the 60s and 70s, yes. is that the bottles are too tall for American refrigerators. Yes, and it led to the invention of what is called the California bottle. The California bottle is in the shape of a Riesling bottle, but it's about an inch and a half shorter, yeah. so it will fit in your fridge door. But Does, ba- this is but real. Boy, this is helpful stuff. Dorothy, yeah. I can, uh, there are okay. people out there taking notes right now. Okay. Dorothy, first answer, no, it doesn't hurt the wine. <laughs> Second, yeah, there's not going to be much good wine in jugs. <laughs> okay. So do we want to go back and delete the last five minutes of no, discussion? No, oh, okay. we'll, uh, we'll just have Matt edit it so that we sound smart. <laughs> good luck, uh, Matt. Good, yes. <laughs> that's that's why, why he gets the big bucks. <laughs> And we're, we're laughing as we say that. Our next one comes from Jane Stiles in San Francisco. I keep hearing the term critter wines with the same kind of scorn people have when they say the word Kardashian. Oh, excellent <laughs> question. These if are it, great. If it has a cute label, does that mean bad wine? No. No. But remember that critter wine started as a rejection of the traditional and very formal labels of the past. So critter wines ultimately became a way for a winemaker to say, I'm not buying into all that snooty French chateau stuff. I'm just making a fun wine that goes with my dog spot. You see the same thing right now in craft beers. Every craft beer has got to have some crazy wacko. It's a way of telling the consumer there's personality behind the brand. Of course, what happens the minute that takes place is that huge corporations see the trend and they invest in the same kind of labels to say, oh, no, we have personality, too. We paid an agency a good money to develop this personality (laughs) for it. So you're still seeing it. And that, that it. sort of speaks to what we were talking about before about, you know, in essence, chasing the giant market. And so a lot of those wines that have critters on them, but not all of them, are wines that, um, of course, now it's changed as they stop using animals and they start using bicycles and, and you all know, sorts trains. Of and Funny names. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's all just an attempt to break through this massive amount of there are 120,000 wines on the U.S. market right now. And it's hard to get anybody to notice your one little wine. Yeah. And, you know, by the way, I think that uh, Kim Kardashian is putting out a wine and it's got a puppy on it. Oh, I thought it had a picture of a rear end. <laughs> yeah, well, there's that, too. The short answer there, uh, Jane, without getting going Rick, too far. they never get the shorter answer uh, no. on this show. Yes. There's a bottle-shaped question. Yes, that's our friend Mark. He's hanging around, and he's he's rolling his eyes at some of our answers. <laughs> you should know that, uh, yeah, once again, we, it comes back to our first answer for most wine questions about is it any good, is if you like it, they're fine, they're totally fine. Right. And if people are making fun of you, hit them with a wine bottle. Yes. And say that's what a kangaroo has to say. Um, okay. Uh, one last one from Andrew Watanabe in Chico. Okay. We Home actually, of a very good brewery, by yeah, the way. Yeah, that's true. 
What does alcohol content do to a wine? How big a difference is there in some wines? How, how big a difference is there in some wines? Uh, I think what he means is within the same kind of wine, like in Cabernet, can there be you know, so the 10 or 12? So the lowest alcohol yeah. wines in the world that I know of are around 3%, and the most alcoholic wines I know of in the world are around 20%. So that's a pretty big difference. Yeah. Well, and, that's a and, really big difference. Yes, and those 20% are, are in there. Well, you know, not entirely, actually. I had a 20% Zinfandel once. Did you? He did it on purpose, and it was really bad. <laughs> um, but yeah. uh, 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 Alcohol gives body. Actually, I think it adds to perfume, although it can also kill the fruit. It does add huge amounts of body. It gives you, when it gets out of balance, it gives you sort of a hot, almost burning sensation in your mouth, which is why it's a really bad combination with Mexican food. Um, and the reason there are so many different wines in, with so many different alcohol levels is because depending on what you're eating and what you want to drink, you need all of them. Yeah, and, you know, one thing, actually, just back to the, the range, within one, within one varietal, one kind of wine, mm -hmm. I think the one that you're going to find the largest swing is Riesling. Because you can find some it's, relatively high alcohol Rieslings, yes. 12, 13 percent. And you can find them down to about six or seven. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What about uh, Zen? Yeah, I'm and Zin, well, well, that's Mark again. And, yeah, so we, what's the range would you see, Mark, in, in Zins? Well, you could look at a, a white Zin that might be a low-alcohol white Zin that could come in at 7%, and you could look at Zinfandel Port that's going to sure. be 18 to 20 Well, we're taking the I'm port gonna, out of it. They're taking the fortified out of okay, it. Okay, so I'm going to go with the, ferment. The late harvest yeah. Zinfandel sure. at 17.5%. Okay, and fine. Half percent. okay yeah. then I'm going with yeah. ferment. Yeah. Ooh. Because you've got Azencia at 3%, and yeah. you've got Tokai Azu at 15%. Yeah. Same but, wine. Yeah, and, you know, one of the things about alcohol, too, is— Alcohol matters in terms of the balance of the wine. This is something that you, you know, Paul and I talk about all the time, which is if a wine is balanced and it's at 14.5% or a wine is balanced at 13% or whatever, you know, it's the wine is balanced. And, you know, sometimes alcohol becomes this thing that people chase and sometimes it becomes this thing that people it's, are against. It's and so it, much easier to look at a number and make a decision yeah. than have to think. Yeah. So, but well, in short, alcohol content does a lot. Yes. Um, it really does. It's, um, it is. Uh, and there's it, a big difference. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the things that's the easiest thing for anybody at home to actually learn about because it's the one thing that when you label. buy the bottle, it's actually written on the outside. Yeah. So you can actually say, oh, this one's 7%, that one's 12%. Let's see if I can taste a difference. Yeah. And, you know, there is also this, um, you know, in the debate inside the Holy Church of Wine, as we call it, um, about levels of alcohol. And I, really, Andrew, for you, I think, you know, get a couple, try, you know, get a, Zin's a really good place to, to go, as Mark said, and, and get one that's a slightly higher alcohol Zin, and get one that's a medium, remember lower, that to and get, taste them. Remember to get higher alcohol, that means the grapes are usually riper, which means the fruit will be riper, which means in some cases the acidity will be lower. So you get bigger, riper, but maybe softer, as opposed to less alcohol, maybe not as ripe, but maybe a little fresher in terms of flavors, and you got to decide what you like. Yeah. And that's what you do. Get them, try, decide what you like. Just remember to keep liking us. Um, even when we don't have a Facebook page, we should do you that know, so I can if, use that If joke. we were 12% alcohol, they would love us. That's true. All right, that is it for questions. When we come back, we're going to have a food and wine pairing, and our friend Mark McKinnon is going to help us with that. Excellent. Stay with us. Listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Time to have a food pairing. And since we've been talking about the Golden Age, I thought we would come up with something that sort of signifies a Golden Age, or maybe it's a Gilded Age. It's a, it's a uh, one of my favorite little appetizers: oysters on the half shell. 
oysters on the half shell with the vinaigrette, with the cocktail sauce? Well, How let's are we going ask that question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are they, uh, are they barbecued or are they the fresh ones? They're going to die. I'm thinking we're, we're, we're a little fresh, a little bit chopped onion on there. Maybe a well, dash. Well, we are fresh. That's a, for sure. A, yeah, just a dash of, uh, of, a, of a spice. But Okay. Uh, I, I know where your wife's going with this you one. You do. And I'm yeah. going there with her, yeah. which is I'm thinking bubbly. This is a place where I don't want one of those yeasty, toasty bubblies no. from France. I want something that's a little cleaner, a little pure fruit. I'm going Francia Corta. I'm going California Sparkling. I well, I couldn't disagree with you. I'm going to let Mark go number two here. You uh, you mentioned uh, a oh, possible... there's no question. It has to be Semillon. Yeah, Semillon's great. <laughs> it has to be yeah, Semillon. There you go. See, see, he is. He is I, not... I know. I know a California Semillon in particular that I'm quite <laughs> fond of. But um, you know, the other one is uh, we just got back from New Zealand. Uh, New Zealand Pinot Gris. Is oh yeah, it, you know I mean Savi sure. Blanc is supposed to be the thing. New Zealand Pinot Gris, especially the ones that really hold their acid. Yep. And the oysters yep. down there, my goodness. Yes. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know, and uh, you didn't bring any. You're you? in the. You're yeah, in, they're in the car. It's it's, <laughs> it's a little warm outside. <laughs> yes. that, I was wondering what that smell was in the parking lot. <laughs> explains a lot. Yeah. Well, aroma yeah. or bouquet. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, I was actually going to a region. Um, and it's the region of Alsace, and, sure. and there's a okay. lot of those bright wines. A Pinot Blanc would, you know, would, yep. would do really well there, and yep. and certainly the Pinot Gris from from Alsace as well. Yeah. And and is that? But the same thing was it's a it's good fruit and good acidity. Those yep. whites that that pick and it up. Interesting. Really well. None of us mentioned the classic combination, which is Muscadet, which is from the Atlantic seaboard of of France, and is uh, bright and lively, and has really high acidity, very crisp. You don't even need the vinaigrette with the oysters. Yeah, you just especially you've got the, the saline character of the oysters yeah. and that touch of sweetness and a just, little bit of that floral I'm characteristic. Yeah, no doubt. yeah. And we we yeah we got to we got to just not be hungry when we do the show. So here's a question: <laughs> Is there a red you could put with oysters? Something bright, something uh, fresh. Poss- See, maybe possibly maybe. something like a Barbera d'Asti. That might work if it was maybe. kept in the fridge. But yeah. you know, I, the, it has this, to be cold. This is one of those pairings where maybe the answer is no. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, you know, drink what you yeah. want, do what you want, but occasionally. Yeah, uh, not a bad idea. All right, well, there are plenty of other bad ideas uh, that you've heard today already. <laughs> and that's it for another round of Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Our engineer is Matt Passini. Thank Thanks, you, Matt. Matt. Thanks to Capital Public Radio for the studio use. Thank you, Mark McKenna, for coming in. Yeah. And if anyone would like to ask us a question that we can answer on the show, go to rickandpaulwine.com. All one word, Rick and Paul Wine. And if you've learned anything today, we hope it's that you can never find a wine that's too good or too bad or too clean. I don't know. You could never find anything wrong with wine. Just find wine. Just find wine. I'm Rick Cushman. I'm Paul Wagner. Remember, the best wines you drink are with friends. Or with us. Especially with us.